The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, stop writing that USB 3.0 network stack and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 563 with guest Steve Milroy, recorded live Monday, May 31st, 2010. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms, WPF, Silverlight, and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And now... Man who's thankful today he wasn't born a shrimp in the Gulf of Mexico, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl. It's Richard. It's .NET. It's good. Yes, it is. Hey, man. Hey, buddy. How are you? We just got off this road trip, and now we're thinking, what can we do next? You know the problem is, yeah. we got off the road trip, we went to our respective corners, right? Yeah. And then we got back together again, what, two weeks later? And shared some nice... 25-year-old Bowmore scotch. Ah, yes. I pulled out my good Bowmore for you. You must be my friend. So we decided that we were going to commit ourselves to some more time in the community and reconnect our .NET Rocks listeners with some of our previous guests. You know, we get a lot of questions via email, and we get a lot of questions when we get face-to-face with people, and we can't always answer them. And we realize that that uh, what you really want to do is have a real good connection with the guests. Right, of course. Let's do a whole weekend like that. So we decided to do the .NET Rocks live weekend, June 26th through the 29th. You can read about it online at .netrocks.com slash liveweekend.aspx. And we're going to be broadcasting, that's right, to your phone and to your PC 24 hours a day for three to for four days straight. They will be doing live content from 8 a.m. Eastern to 10 p.m. Eastern every day. Uh, well, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. And then in the time that we're not broadcasting, we're going to be repeating. We're going to be playing the repeats of the shows. We get to eat, right? We do get to eat. We get to sleep a little bit, but pretty much we're going to be in the studio. And and it's not just going to be goofing around either. We've got a huge slew of guests and every hour we're going to be talking to a different guest. And if you want to read who's going to be online, go to liveweekend.aspx. Most importantly, email us your questions for those guests. And yeah. during the event, we'll have the Twitter running. We'll have the IRC channel running. And we'll and be we'll taking be... phone calls, too. Yeah. So you'll be able to talk directly to the rock stars. So it's all about the community that weekend, the live weekend, June 26th through the 29th. Hey, Richard. Sir. 
Let's get into Better Know a Framework. All right. All right, my friend, what do you got? So in talking about uh, XAML styles and control templates, you need to know about setters. Okay. Well, styles are nothing new. You essentially want to create a style where you have a set of properties that get applied when you apply the style. And the way to do that inside a style is to use setters. So the syntax would be, you know, angle bracket setter, property equals, and then in quotes, the name of the property, and then value equals, and the value of the property. Simple as that. So that that all happens within inside a style. And of course, styles cascade in XAML. So you can name them and you can apply them just by strategically placing them as well. You can also make them static resources so that they can be accessed anywhere. Setters. Setters. Yeah. That's not specific to 4.0 or anything. That's always been in, in XAML. That's the XAML thing. And I'm really starting to feel like we've got to stop talking about WPF and Silverlight. Just talk about XAML. XAML is XAML. Yeah. I like XAML. Yep. All right. I have an email, Mr. Franklin. Who's talking to us? That's a quick one. You'll like this. It's from. It's about show 555. And see if you can figure out which show it is. Hi, guys. I started listening to your show a few months ago, and I've tried to catch up on some of your back catalog. Good luck, my friend. Mm-hmm. I've lost track of the number of times I've come into work and said, hey, I was just listening to this podcast, and I think we can use X for this project. Right. I just listened to the show with Mark Miller and Karen Mangiacotti. Fantastic show. Less technical than your usual, but the passion and fun of creating Mark showed are in some ways more important. It's why we do the work we do, or at least why I want to do what I do. Mm. It'd be great to see you guys live, but unless you got plans to head for Australia, I can't see this happening soon. Hmm. Thanks, Doug Pace, who I guess is from Australia, and I don't know if we should let this cat out of the bag there, Carl. Should we? Why not? All right. So we are deep in discussion with Tech at Australia and New Zealand to see if we can bring .NET Rocks to Australia and New Zealand. Would that not be cool? It would be a lot of fun. And uh, by all means, if you guys, if folks down there want to see us, go rattle your local Microsoft people and let them know. Bring Carl and Richard to uh, Australia and New Zealand. We will come. Yep, we will. Trying hard to make it true. Yep. And Doug... Thanks for your great email. I'm sending a mug to Australia. And if you'd like a mug, send us an email, rocks at franklins.net. So, Richard, before we uh, bring Steve up here, we need to talk about Norway and the Norwegian Developers Conference. Indeed, we've been doing this contest where we've been giving away mugs for folks that have been going to the Norwegian Developers Conference site, and that's at ndc2010.no for Norway. And uh, we have our final winners here. We've got three winners to announce for the contest. So the oh first goodness. is one we actually missed. Back on May 18th, we had a winner, and this one it wins a mug, and her name is Abaluti from Quebec. Wow. How about that? Yeah. So uh, Abaluti, we'll be sending a mug out to you as soon as possible. And then our final set of winners here. So we got two winners. One is the winner of the mug. Mm-hmm. And it's a Norwegian fellow named Oidvin Bernsten. So Oidvin is winning, wins a mug and our NDC prize package. So this is the big winner. The one who gets a free ride to NDC comes to Norway where we're going to be June 16th to 18th. Flight, hotel and admission. Flight, hotel and admission. You bet. And maybe we'll take them out to dinner too. And maybe. And and lots of good fun. And the 64-bit question. Oh, that's right. 
Emmanuel De Bono from Italy. Congratulations, Emmanuel. And the NDC folks will be in contact with you to give you your uh, information to get to the conference. We look forward to seeing you there. And I hope everybody's coming to NDC. I know Carl and I will be there. Yep. June 16th and 18th in Oslo, Norway. Go to NDC2010.no. And now we shall introduce our friend Steve Milroy. He is the CEO of Onterra Systems, an industry leader with location-based services and geospatial solutions. Steve is a Microsoft Regional Director and Bing Maps Technology Consultant. Steve's presented at developer conferences, user groups, and business associations on many emerging technology solution and development topics, and also uh, the author of the Bing application that tracked the road trip all around this crazy country. Welcome, Steve. Hey, guys. How you doing? Doing great. You got the uh, the GPS unit okay? We sent it back. Yep, I did. So we just needed tracking on that, right? Yeah. Yeah, that that box was awesome. Little aluminum case, antennas, GPS, all that good stuff. And a, <laughs> when we received it, we got it at the Bellagio in Las Vegas to to stick into the RV. I open it up, and there's an invoice in there for twelve hundred dollars. <laughs> and we're thinking we yeah, better not, not break this. <laughs> yeah, it's not cheap, but it's um, industrial quality. So. I think it proved itself over the road trip. Oh, yeah. We loved the blinky lights. It was awesome. And you got to compare this to what we did in 2005, where we had a laptop yeah. with the GPS thing and the antenna on it. And every time we had to start the RV up, we had to boot it up, try and get it running, get it synced before we could move this thing. You plugged it in. It just worked. You never touched it. I think I had to reboot it once. One time it went into a funny blinky mode, and I thought, oh, my God, I think we've actually broken this thing. And I pulled the plug out, and I plugged it back in, which is really all technicians know how to do. And it worked. So it never failed us. It was amazing. I was also surprised at how well it did track over uh, western Texas, which we were a little skeptical whether you could actually be tracked out there. Yeah, that was the dark area, right? Where I, and There were points there where we had no internet connection, but I, I guess it buffered a bunch of data. Yeah, I think it it does buffer for you know a few hours if if there's loss of connectivity. So it's kind of cool. So and the application is still online at silverlight.onterrasys.com slash dnr underscore road trip or shrinkster.com slash one david. What is why? Yankee. Yankee. One David Yankee Oscar. One D Y O. And uh, it's still there. Although I think the the date slider has to be moved back quite a bit for you to see any data, it's hard to imagine. But uh, that was a while ago, my friend. So tell us about this application because we really didn't talk about it that much on the show, except uh, you know once or twice. Yeah, so it um, it uses this industrial strength GPS device that sends messages to a UDP port every minute, and those messages which are a format from the vendor, which is a Sierra wireless device, which many of you probably are familiar with the wireless cards you can get for your laptop and other um, types of equipment. So Sierra wireless also makes GPS tracking devices, and that device sends these messages to a server that we have, and those messages get passed and inserted into the database as they're received. And again, that's about every minute, and if there's 
loss of connectivity, as we talked about, it'll buffer those and send them when it catches up. And so the data gets all persisted in SQL Server, and we're using SQL Server 2008 and the spatial data features, and that allows us to put uh, the GPS latitude, longitude points in a spatial field, and that provides the ability to query that data and work with the data very easily because we have it persisted and you can apply a spatial index and then be able to query it very quickly. So the data is is sitting in SQL Server 2008, and then we have um, the Silverlight client, which is Silverlight 4, and that uses Bing Maps and, and Silverlight 4 capabilities, and it basically makes requests to the SQL Server through a WCF um, connector, and actually the the guts of this application are going to be available um, on CodePlex in a, a project called Data Connector, which will launch pretty soon. And that um, allows you to basically make calls from Bing Maps and Silverlight to SQL Server and retrieve that spatial data and then obviously plot it on the map. So the application requests data when it loads. It had the static event locations, um, the addresses, all of that metadata associated with each of the stops that that you guys made, and then it um, loads those points to begin with, and it shows kind of a rough connection, um, the rough order of stops that you guys made, Mm -hmm. and then when the application loads, it also goes and retrieves the current position, and you're able to see kind of in real time, and I found myself a few times actually watching you guys driving, and um, it updates every minute or so, and you can see the position move down a highway. So that's obviously the core part of it, part of the application. Well, it was very cool. We actually had, and I think we talked about this, we had a, a semi-stalker. He uh, was watching us drive through Cleveland, and he was in Cleveland. He said, hey, you guys going to stop in Cleveland? Because we had twi- tweets going, too, and you can talk about how you m- laid those over on the map. But uh, as we're driving along, you can see tweets pop up. So we're reading these tweets, and, you know, five in a row. be great if you could stop in Cleveland. Hey, show Cleveland some love. Right, so we stopped. We actually were going to stop anyway for lunch and meet uh, Gabe Tarok from Preemptive Solutions, one of our sponsors, and uh, at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So I tweeted back, "We are stopping in Cleveland for lunch," and then he said, "Great, where can I meet you?" And then I took a nap, so because <laughs> we really didn't know where we were going for lunch. So we get out at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and he pulls up, and he's got his laptop on the seat of his Jeep. You know, and he was basically following us on the map, figuring out where we were, and and uh, and came out to lunch with us. Anthony, that was great fun. Yeah, when um, people can find you wherever you're at, I I guess um, it's good that you only had one example of that, right? Uh, no, he was a good guy, but uh, you know, fortunately, it's it's uh, for the powers of good in our case. What I found interesting is, I mean, you, you collected a ton of points. It was every minute or so you were collecting points. And, and the you had a pretty good algorithm here where you can sh- sort of stretch out the timeline and see the whole route and look at the map in, in really sort of 
low resolution detail, the general route. But then, like you were just talking about the Cleveland thing, you can drill into Cleveland and literally see that we stopped at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You know, exact the details high enough that we were able to find every location. So, the, do you know how many points you collected all told for that whole trip of three weeks? Um, I think it was certainly um, in the thousands. I didn't get a, a final count, but it could have been tens of thousands of points. And so, you know, when you're dealing with that amount of data, you really can't show it in any application very well um, and have decent performance. So with Bing Maps and with the Silverlight control, we're kind of limited to probably a thousand or a couple thousand points. So we implemented this technique where based on the zoom level, um, we request more details or less details. And um, so obviously if you're zoomed out at the whole U.S., you don't really care if you, you know, turned at one particular location or another, you know, every five or 10 minutes is probably good enough frequency to show the general area. So at the U.S. level, we just select every sort of 10th point. And then as you zoom down to street level, we actually show you every single point from the database. So that's, that's a good technique in these types of applications to, you know, balance the performance. Yeah. How, uh, how many developers and, uh, worked on this and how about how long did it take? So it was one primary developer, which I think you guys um, interacted with a few times, Randy, mm-hmm. and he's uh, one of our lead Silverlight uh, mapping developers. And yeah. it was primarily him for, I think total, it was about um, four weeks. We um, we obviously had a lot of the, the backend pieces already working with the device integration and the database and those pieces. So Effectively, what we did is just wired up the existing database with the the new Silverlight client that we built for the for the road trip. Yeah, and uh, it it really didn't take him all that long. And I remember as we were driving to from Las Vegas to uh, Mountain View, and we had a couple of days. We were actually testing it and editing it in the RV. It was really cool. <laughs> and then uh, we also had a. Uh, one of our sponsors, Preemptive Systems, who makes uh, Runtime Intelligence, which is a, a great tool in the box in Visual Studio 2010 for instrumenting and uh, monitoring performance and, uh, and uh, uh, usage data uh, of any application that's in production. And they wired it up to the application so we could see how many people were using it as we were driving around. Very cool. Yeah, that yeah, it was very cool, and we were able to plug that in kind of as we went along, and they had to make a few tweaks, and it, it came together came together really nice um, in terms of being able to see where people were coming from, um, how many people had actually visited the site. So um, that was a great tool. Yeah, there were some limitations on it, for better or worse, because we built it in Silverlight. Um, the analytics piece couldn't actually figure out how many users it is. I've gone through the raw web logs now, and it looks like we had about 3,000 unique users using this, the app over the course of the show. Uh, and, uh, with, and they hit it about 9,000 times. So mm. it seems like the same people used it fairly often. And is that accurate, though, Richard? Because when wasn't there some issues with Silverlight and in, in uh... well, that was the problem was that the analytics couldn't show those numbers. But that's why I went to the IIS logs because they ah. showed the numbers that that was actually individual page requests and so forth, which are much more accurate. Yeah, and I think we talked about also pulling the um, the tweet log 
also that there's a transcript of the whole road trip, so um, I guess you guys can make that available on your website at some point, so people could read kind of the whole um, the whole communication back and forth over the three week period. That'd be kind of cool. Well, that was one of the things I really liked about this the app was the that the dialogue in Twitter that went on while we were traveling. A, it was hilarious, but it was also sort of you know you see you sort of get a visual representation on the map of when we got close to an event, we got a lot more tweets going on. During a long road trip, you'd have a few back and forth with folks you're talking to as you're traveling, but the the storm would come around the individual shows. And and they that mapping the tweets onto the map really showed that effect. Yep. And that was done, um, that was done, Obviously, using the Twitter APIs, um, but as many people probably recognize, there's a lot of tweets in in various areas and other things. So we chose to to use the um, the hashtag that you guys set up and just request um, the tweets for that hashtag every I think it was every minute or so. Right. And that gave us a complete kind of history of the communication to and from, and we we actually persisted that in the SQL 08 database as well. So. We kind of had a complete um, um, pairing of the GPS positions with the tweets. So when the application loads, it actually is able to quickly, based on the GPS data that you're looking at, pull up the tweets associated with those. And we actually, um, if if you notice, using the application, you can double-click on the map and the Flickr as well as the Twitter um, proximity APIs are used. And that's basically where... We capture the lat long of the, the 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 location that the user clicked on the map, and we get that lat long, and we send it to the Twitter or the the Flickr APIs, and we can retrieve all tweets that are within a one mile radius. So funny! It was really funny to demo. It was really funny to demo because you know you could just click anywhere on the map and see these random tweets about. You know, it could be about anything. So you know, when you do that in front of an audience, you got to be careful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did a few demonstrations of it too, where it seemed like there was some content that um, wasn't particularly presentation friendly. But um, it, you know, that that's a great way to kind of pull uh, information related to a location. But in the case of the um, the actual tweets that went on um, with the hashtag, we actually were polling for that data every minute, and we are persisting that in our database, so you could go back and play it back, and you had a we have this complete transcript of all of the communication back and forth. So. Yeah. Also put great. a lot less load on Twitter because the clients weren't polling Twitter. They were just hitting your server. Yeah, exactly. So as it re- refreshed, as you guys move, moved around, it was just querying via WCF to the, to the SQL database and retrieving just the latest tweets that were in the database. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik whose RAD controls outperform all others. Are you experiencing performance hits when handling millions of records with your Silverlight grid? Have you been frustrated by the amount of XAML code it takes to create a control template? There are so many potential bottlenecks that can drag your app performance. And of course, there's no universal solution for them. The good news is the guys from Telerik understand the complexity of that problem. When building RAD controls for Silverlight, they isolate every probable source of performance loss. Then they apply a respective solution. Through UI and data virtualization, data sampling, and content recycling, 
Rad controls help you deliver unbeatable performance with your Silverlight apps. You can check out Telerik Silverlight Grid handling 50 million cells as a piece of cake or Rad Chart working seamlessly with a million records. Just go to Telerik.com slash Silverlight slash performance for details. And hey, don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. They truly make this show possible. So tell us what's going to be available on CodePlex. Is this something that anybody can use to track any kind of journey across America? Well, certainly the UI pieces are um, can be made made available on CodePlex. Um, we can um, look into doing that, but certainly if anyone would like a copy, um, you can reach out to me directly, and I'd be happy to give you a copy. There's obviously other challenges getting things like this posted on CodePlex because that was part of the Bing Maps sponsorship of um, the road trip. That's true. So in the mean, in the meantime, um, again, if anyone wants a copy of the application, feel free to ping me. And I know uh, Richard and Carl, you guys have it as well. Um, we can certainly share it. And that'll give you all the code of how to integrate with the Twitter APIs and the Flickr APIs and how to plot, um, you know, all these different types of data on the map. So that's probably the easiest way in the short term, but in the long term, there may be a possibility to get it actually posted as a as a formal CodePlex project. There's some licensing challenges around getting onto CodePlex. Yeah, obviously Microsoft sponsored some of the work, and and obviously the um, the road trip itself. And so there's some obviously with any of these sorts of things there's some licensing considerations that just take time to work through in terms of getting it all published up on up on coplex so and and uh and as you said this uh there are some challenges but the basic the basic architecture was you had a server that was hitting the twitter api that was hitting the device and storing that stuff in a database then you also had your your aspnet site that hosted the uh, Silverlight application and accessed gave access to that database through the to the Silverlight application, and uh, then it was just a matter of plotting on the map. And you also had this great time slider, uh, date time slider, so you could limit and you can still do this. If in fact, if you're going to go to the road trip application and see anything, you have to back up to about April 17th or April 18th if you want to see the beginning of the road trip, and then go all the way to May 8th. And uh, and then you'll see all the plots. You also have to check off in the uh, in the box on the right. You have to check off that you want the history and the tweets. And don't worry about the flicker. That the the flicker thing never got completed in terms of being on the timeline. But uh, if you, you if you want to see flickers that are geolocated, you can uh, you can you know, double click on that. You can check off the flicker option too. And every one of those little blue history balls actually shows how fast we were moving. At the oh, time yeah, well. that was so funny. Which means most of the time it said, whoa, now, speeding, because our driver <laughs> pretty much kept his foot on the floor the whole time we were driving. So we talked about our driver uh, before on the show, and uh, we decided to have him back to to drive the RV again. But I think we all came to the conclusion that that would be the last time that we asked him to drive, because he has a Porsche. on. <laughs> Well, he has a Porsche. He drives a Porsche, right? And, you know, when he drives the RV, it's wild acceleration and wilder braking, you know? So with an RV, you really have to be gentle. But, and, you know, he knew that, but chose not to drive like that. So, 
Yeah, so he's not that guy. Maybe it, maybe it was the schedule that you guys put him under to make all of these locations. You guys were driving crazy. I, I looked at <laughs> all hours of the day, and it seemed like you guys were still driving here and there. So The hardest one, well, the longest one, I think, was Phoenix to Houston in one shot. And we were on the road for 22, 23 hours. Yep. Left about 10 a.m., arrived 8 a.m. Yeah. Wow. Don't make me do that again. Yeah, we were listening to Mondays the whole way. <laughs> Not the whole way, of course, but... Yeah, well, in those dark hours and the wee hours of the morning, we, we pulled out the PA system we brought with us and wired it up and turned up some Mondays. Keep us awake. I, I was driving some of those wee hours, too. We we sort of took turns on those long stretches because, you know, you, one person just shouldn't be driving that long. So, Steve, this is, I mean, an odd application, what do you normally do in terms of tracking apps? Yeah, it's it's actually not that odd. I think the odd part of it is just the community integration, the Flickr right. and Twitter types of scenarios. Obviously, in an enterprise perspective, it probably wouldn't be Twitter that you're using. It'd probably be a you know two way messaging system. A, a lot of companies have you know Windows or other mobile devices that their drivers use to get deliveries for the day or dispatch items and so i think this scenario applies you know pretty broadly because you know whether it's twitter or whether it's an internal communication mechanism being able to go back and see you know when and where certain events happen certain communication happen right i, I think's you know quite useful so we obviously do a lot of these you know tracking and fleet types of applications. We've deployed a, a number of systems to, you know, folks that do service for forklifts and you know, other types of applications. Um, so it's a pretty common scenario. And I think even in this economy, being able to know where your assets are, being able to make sure that they're using your equipment, enterprise equipment, you know, vehicles and other uh, pieces of equipment, being able to use it uh, appropriately really can help companies save money. So it we, we kind of use these technologies in a fun and cool way, but many organizations are using the same technologies and and doing it in you know in an enterprise way that actually saves the money, which I, I think is pretty cool too. So yeah. you normally be tracking many vehicles at once. I mean I can imagine like a cab company just knowing where all your cabs are at any given time. Yeah it, it can be used for any types of scenarios. I, I've worked on projects where we're tracking reporters. Um, we did some stuff actually with um, the Katrina stuff with Nightly News, actually tracking reporters as they moved around and did different reports along the Gulf Coast. We've done stuff with other news organizations in terms of where are the satellite trucks, um, you know, all the way down to tracking, you know, dump trucks that are taking loads of gravel and sand from a building site to another. So there's a lot of scenarios. Um, people are sometimes a little skeptical because obviously it's a, a little bit big brother, but I think in this day and age, um, companies obviously need to be as efficient as possible. And yeah. it's becoming a pretty mainstream thing to track where my assets are, where my people are if they're out in the field. I love the fact that the last location that our vehicle is in, I guess the last time we actually turned the tracker on, is at a bar. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's at that bar by the Microsoft facility where we went for drinks after the last show. Yeah, that's right. That that yeah, and it's you know it's incredibly accurate. That's right where we parked it too. <laughs> <laughs> it's right where we parked it. <laughs> yeah, remember 
And remember that example where we're looking at, uh, I think you may have been in Phoenix, and we're looking at where you were, and you guys were parked at this hotel, I think, getting a, a little bit of rest, and there was actually a bus in the aerial imagery coming from Big Maps, and we're like, is this the bus that you guys are oh, driving? Yeah, I remember. And it, just, it was just, um, it happened to be, I think it was a much bigger bus, but it just happened to be a bus parking spot within yeah. this um, hotel parking lot, and it was just funny to actually see the point directly on this other bus. So. Yeah, we were right, right. We had parked in a proper bus location there. It, there's a bunch of incidents like that where folks were looking at, at mostly the Google street level data and seeing large vehicles. Says, is that you guys? I'm like, no, that probably was photographed a year ago. It's not likely that Google's actually following us. It's so funny to zoom right in on our parking spot. It's the third one from the end. Yeah. I remember that exactly where we were. Yeah, it's exactly where we put the vehicle in. <laughs> And it figures that we would end in a bar. That's the last time we turned the track. We were out on the like, porch with the yellow umbrellas. Yeah. With a, just a bunch of people. And I also remember that oh, there was just a bunch of tables out there, and some were nailed down and some weren't. And so we were trying to move them all around to get this one big table. You know, it was really comical, actually. Because after that, I think I flew out the next morning, Carl. You actually took the RV, and I figured the last point would be the RV going back uh to the to the RV dealer. Oh, uh, so here's a good here's <laughs> this is a good story. So w- I get to pick up the RV in Las Vegas. I did the RV pick up and bring back, right? That was my job. So I get there and it's a class B and I thought we were getting a class A. Turns out it was just a mix up in communications, but but anyway, it's 30 feet long, but it's got a wrap, you know? It's got a they're they're advertising their RV store. So it's got a wrap that goes halfway around all the way up. And I'm like, uh, yeah, well, we have logos that we need to put up here. And the guy just sort of scratched his head and he didn't say much. So when we got to Mountain View, I said, well, that wrap's got to come off. So we took it off. We got a heat gun and we took it all off and we put up our logo uh, things, you know, our stickers in Mountain View. And then before we took it back, we took those stickers off, but of course the wrap was gone. And the guy is walking around the RV and looking at it and saying, you know, and it t- just talking, making small talk. And he was just didn't say a word about it. And then uh, I guess he got on the phone in the office and called up corporate or whatever and said, you know, sent him the information. He says, yeah, I never got a, I never got anything on this uh, paperwork, but, uh, you know, so now I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm waiting for the axe to fall. You know, Mr. Franklin, it's going to be $9,000 to put on a new wrap or something like that, but he never did. Did you keep the wrap? So no. You give that no, back? yeah, <laughs> taking a wrap off is not good for the wrap. Yeah, it destroys the wrap. <laughs> yeah, it's really just plastic stick on stuff. Yeah, it's just, it's just stickers, big yeah. stickers. So, I mean, it's easy yeah. for them to put them on. Well, obviously, and as, as I recall, as as someone who was involved in removing it, it was not in good shape in the first place. Yeah, it wasn't. But yeah, I was I was definitely just waiting for the axe to fall. Okay, one wrap that'll be you know, but it didn't happen that way. Yeah, that's that's one thing that didn't happen. But at least it's uh, yeah, everything's gone back all right. So um, you don't have to use a twelve hundred dollar tracking device, right, to to make this sort of stuff work. Is there? Less expensive. If someone was going to actually try and build something like this, could they use their iPhone or something else with GPS and some kind of cellular modem? Yeah, and that price was probably from a couple years ago that was just lying around in the box. Um, it was a, yeah, it was a retail that. price, I was sure. 
Yeah, and and nowadays you can get that same device for under five hundred bucks. And there's actually some other devices that are very similar that you know retail are a couple hundred dollars. So um, you can certainly get similar um, hardware at a lot lower cost. And and actually in the industry over the last sort of four or five years, there has been you know a lot of um, commoditization of these technologies. So it's just it's super cheap. And if companies have never done it before now, certainly a good time to do it. But you can track iPhones. You can track, you know, other applications. And, you know, some of the reporter tracker stuff that I mentioned, um, we actually used cell phones back then. And that was five years ago to track reporters. The the challenge that you face with any cell phone tracking is the quality because right. the user themselves can turn off the device or turn right. off the tracking app. And so, you know, that can affect quality often similar to what you guys also experienced in your last road trip, you just forget to start up the application or there's some problem starting up the application. And and so the tracking is interrupted for a period of time. The other big thing, which I have a Windows mobile device and a couple of years ago um, wrote a compact framework app that just basically, you know, got the GPS data from the local device and sent it to a server, similar to how these, um, these devices from Sierra Wireless and other uh, device makers work, but it literally kept the wireless can, you know, radio on and sending data constantly. And I think I got uh, two hours of battery life when normally I get two days. So that's right. the biggest challenge is, is battery life just really stinks when you are doing tracking because it's constantly, you know, waking up the GPS receiver and getting a fix and then waking up the, um, the wireless modem and sending that data. So it just, it really consumes a lot of power. So you can certainly do it. I would say it's best done in sort of an occasionally um, pinging type of mode where you don't really care where they've been. You just want to, if you need it, you just want to ping the device and say, give me a location. And that right. may happen. You know, if you do it three or four times or 10 times a day, that's probably a good scenario. But when you're doing this sort of every minute, it's yeah. just, it's not a good scenario for cell phones at all. You really want it hardwired into the car. Well, and the device you sent us cached up the points, so if there was no connection with the server, it waited. You know, it kept them in cache, so the next time it did get uh, connectivity, it, it gave you all the points. Can we talk about what this device is and whether it, it's available for for sale? Or, you know, can anybody else, can anybody use this device that you sent us? Yeah, there's a couple of different devices. That, that that one is is called the Pinpoint device from Sierra Wireless. And as I mentioned earlier, Sierra Wireless, you, most people probably know that name because they make data cards and other things for laptops. But they also make these ruggedized um, GPS tracking units. And I think they're, you know, they're reasonably sized. They're maybe 10 inches by 4 inches and they weigh maybe four or five pounds. They're not, you know, something that you'd carry around in your pocket. There are devices that are similar that run on battery and you can, you know, use them kind of like a pager and, and track individuals. But that device um, is something that you actually, in a real implementation, you guys just plugged it into the cigarette light right. adapter, but you would, um, you'd actually wire, wire it into the fuse box so you have constant power. And you can also wire it into um, other things like the ignition sensor. So when the vehicle's turned on or off, you can actually get a special message. You can wire it into other things. And 
you can actually integrate it with the diagnostics of the vehicle as well to get fuel consumption and you know there's a lot of sophisticated stuff that you can do but certainly you can go out and buy these pinpoint devices there's a lot of resellers um so anyone can ping me if they're you know particularly interested i'd be happy to point them in the right direction yeah i went on to frugal and just searched for uh, sierra wireless pinpoint and found the unit that we've had which i think is the older one it's called a 3310 um our reselling for $200. The fancy new ones, the XTs are 750 between 500 and 700. So still, you know, for what it is, and these are big, these are bent to be car mounted devices. They are not really that portable. They're big, robust, indestructible. I guess the big thing is you've got to mount the antennas for them well. Yeah, that's the other piece is that has kind of an integrated antenna GPS receiver and so typically, you know, you could mount that directly on the, the roof of the car. You can also get some um, antennas that will sit on the dashboard just underneath the windscreen and allow you to, to do it that way as well. So, yeah, you need to need to set up that, that antenna. It's a very good uh, anti-theft device, don't you think? You hide it somewhere in the car. And it always knows the where car. the car is. Or, or just want to keep track of your daughter's uh, dating activity, for example. I don't know why I said that. Why would you say that? <laughs> oh, don't remind me. <laughs> well, there's LoJack, right? The the sort of car tracking system. Yeah, LoJack's a similar concept. The thing with LoJack is it actually uses RF signals, kind of like um, kind of like the way that um, an avalanche beacon works. That it it doesn't know your position. The LoJack's device does. It's just sort of calling out, position. going, "I'm uh, I've been stolen. I've been stolen." Yeah, or it just keeps sending it some, like a ping. And so police officers have the LoJack receiver and right. they can actually listen. And, you know, it's kind of like tracking deer and other things that as you get closer, the sound gets, you know, stronger or the, the number of pings get stronger. And that's how they're able to actually find you. But I think ultimately we'll start to see this even integrated directly into vehicles. I, I know. You know, a number of the automakers are starting to add these types of GPS receivers. Obviously, they do it for navigation purposes, yeah. but imagine being able to, yeah, keep track of your car, see where you left it when you, you know, got back to the airport after a long trip. You know, where's my car? And I've actually used it that way a couple of times is to pull up a map and say, oh, where did I park my car again? And That's funny. I can see see where it's parked at the car, at the um, the airport. But you could certainly do it for, you know, family trackers. You want to keep track of where your vehicles are. If if it got lost or stolen, you could you could track it down. So it's not just about law enforcement. It's about you know anyone keeping track of their their personal assets. When you think about it, a car a car already has GPS in it. What you really want is just a cellular modem integrated in the car, which has a bunch of other benefits too, like traffic data and so forth. And then you'd also know where the car is. Now, you know, what's cool about this is if you keep it connected to the, uh, you know, the fuse box, so it's on all the time. If you, you know, you could sit there with an application and ping it. And if it moves and, uh, and you don't want it to move, it can tell you, hey, man, somebody's stealing your car. <laughs> yeah, actually, the devices themselves have um, movement detectors. So um, it will actually go to sleep. Um, you, you may have seen that a few times that it's it's not sending data when the vehicle stationary right, obviously right. that 
not a good use of wireless connectivity. Or it's power. not a good use of power. Yeah, it's not a good use of anything. So the device basically, you know, goes into a sleep mode when you stop and it knows immediately when you start moving again. So you could, you know, certainly, you know, keep track of those initial movement events. And if you're not expecting your vehicle to be moving, you could get an alert that, you know, your vehicle's now moving. You can also set up geofences. So if there was an area that, you know, you wanted to know when your vehicle left your home area or you wanted to keep track of it, then you could, you know, put a geofence, which is really just a boundary around an area and say, tell me when my vehicle leaves a one mile radius of my house. So if, you know, if someone just turns the car on and moves it in the driveway, you don't necessarily want to get, you know, alerts constantly. You can do the same thing with the reverse too, where if there's an area that maybe you don't want your employees or your kids to be going, then you could put a geofence and say, if this vehicle enters this area, I want to do a spatial query and you know, generate an alert, send a text message, those sorts of things. Right. Yeah, lots of possibilities there for things you could do with tracking. The only problem, of course, is GPS requires line of sight, right? We've had, we had serious problems with tracking in Chicago just because the buildings are so tall. Yeah, traditional GPS does have some um some challenges when you, you know, park in a parking garage or it loses um at least a partial view of the sky. Obviously it has to find at least three different satellites. Typically a good lock is, you know, five, six, seven satellites that it's receiving messages from and it's able to then accurately fix it. So if you're in a parking garage or you're in they call them urban canyons where you've got a lot of tall buildings around. You could temporarily lose, um, you know, a good fix. Um, what I typically right. find is you, you don't um, lose the fix. The, the fix becomes a lot less accurate in those situations. But there, there is technology like assisted GPS where um, with a particular carrier, it will fall back to being able to triangulate your location from cellular towers if it can't get a good GPS fix. So again, the, the quality goes down, but you can still get a general sense for, okay, this device is in this area. Right. So there's, there's, there's ways that, um, you know, you can work around some of those challenges. My iPhone works that way. You know, it triangulates if, uh, if it can't find signal and, uh, uh, yeah, it generally will put me up the street ab- about a half a mile if I'm in a building, for example. Yeah. Yeah, in- interior tracking is another problem. Yeah. So it's it's another part of this whole thing is, well, you know, we're getting pretty good tracking vehicles because they generally don't drive indoors, but uh, tracking people because they do go indoors becomes more challenging. Well, Steve, uh, we're just about ready to wrap. Is there anything last minute you want to throw at us? Not really. It was exciting to see how well it worked across all of these you know, different environments. So it was a um, pretty quick project that we put together. I'm glad it worked out so well. Me too. 22 states, 6,200 miles in three weeks. Yep. All right, Steve. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for your work on the application, and thanks for being on the show. It's been great talking to you. Thanks, guys. Have a good day. We'll see you next time.
.NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter van.